0: we got as far on the inside steps as this disenchantment and I'd like to mention another extremely important point which actually is the essence of disenchantment and if that essence of disenchantment does not arise this fashion which is the first of the super mundane states cannot follow all its cause and effect I have already mentioned and said that disenchantment has in the, as its uh, base the understanding that the world has nothing to offer which can be of permanent and uh, meaningful substance However, there's far more importance in the fact that we become disenchanted with mind and body of ourselves. And if that arises, then we realize that that also, although it has the senses embedded in it, but that also does not really offer anything of substance. So. As we continually and continue to look at the impermanence of anything connected with this body, and there's certainly no doubt about the fact that it's impermanent, but we need to look at it as it is now being impermanent, not that it will one day die, because most people, if not all, have in the back of their mind When they think of their own death that it isn't happening just yet so let's push it off a bit of course they think it's going to happen one day but after all i'm going to be at least 80 and uh, i've done everything i want to do and got everything i wanted to get and everybody's going to stand around my deathbed and be dreadfully sorry that i'm going and uh, it's going to be a long way away and why worry about something like that? I'm supposed to be in the moment only, and uh, so why worry about it? So it isn't real. But impermanence is real, and it's real every moment. So the thing to do is to understand that the reality of impermanence is happening now, and not when we're 80s and how many people do get to be 80. But anyway, never mind that. Now, this moment. The impermanence of the body. Again and again, I have mentioned it and suggested it, without much um, success. But then, of course, results are not exactly what we do and what we think, or think about, and so I'll mention it again. Look at the impermanence of each breath. Look at the impermanence of each movement that you make. You can't have it permanent because then you can't move. You can't have the breath permanent because then you'll die. You can't have this body permanent. It's getting older every minute and in the process getting uglier too. And it's well worthwhile looking at that. And if one doesn't, the past isn't happening. The enchantment with one's own body, the infatuation with it, has to be counteracted with disenchantment. And that's what it's all about. Now, that doesn't mean disliking one's own body. It doesn't mean disliking anything. And it also doesn't mean liking it. It means seeing it for what it is, a conglomeration of bits and pieces, and I've already given you the method to do that. Take it apart, put a zipper in front, and look at the bits and pieces. What more can one do than actually become aware of them as they are now? Everybody's got enough imagination to figure out what's sitting inside there. Everybody's got enough imagination to see what uh, what the skin consists of and what's around one, skin and hair and all the other things that one can actually see, it doesn't mean liking, it doesn't mean disliking. If one starts disliking one's own body or one's own person, then one has exactly the same craving as if one is liking it. It's no different. It's all one and the same. The only thing is wisdom, insight. Wisdom inside arises out of practice, never out of non-practice. These are the words of the Buddha. It's got to be done. Anybody can have it. Anybody can have wisdom inside, but only those that practice. Practice means doing those things. They, I haven't dreamt them up. They are the instructions of the Buddha. They're to be found in the suttas. I don't have that much imagination to dream all this up. It's all in there. And if we don't follow it, well, that's of course then our own loss. But if we really want a spiritual path, we've got to get to disenchantment. Because if we get stuck somewhere along the line on those places which I mentioned earlier uh, yesterday about the terror which arises when one sees the dissolving of everything and doesn't see the danger in this identification process that we have then we can't have that real desire for deliverance and when we don't have that real desire for deliverance what are we having instead Desires for all kinds of things Desires for nice people, nice travel, nice weather, nice conversation, anything. Desires galore. They don't have to be desires for great material wealth or great material benefits. They are strictly desires for sensual gratification and any thing that gratifies our senses is come by through the desire so our senses are gratified through seeing hearing, tasting, touching, smelling and thinking if we can't get beyond that well we're in good company there's about 5 billion of us that can't get beyond that I mean there's just the occasional one that can but anyway we can give it a go and see whether we can. We're in the best of company, the whole of humanity, even the meditators, are all stuck right there. Because it becomes dangerous then to go further, because one could actually lose one's ego. And when one does lose one's ego, well, one doesn't know what one's getting instead, does one? It's a bit of an unknown. And the fear of the unknown is a very strong fear. But anyone who has done the jhanas has an inkling what it's like to be without the ego momentarily and such a person should know very well that there's nothing more desirable because it's the only time that the mind is really at ease and really at peace Even the Buddha on his deathbed in the Mahapal Sutta when he was, well, he wasn't on his deathbed death, yet, but he was um, just before dying, and he was quite ill and quite ancient. Uh, he said his body was really giving him a lot of trouble, and he said that the only time he's really without any of those bodily aches and pains is when he goes into the jhanas. So anyone who can do that has, an, has at least um, a foretaste and should be able to have that desire for deliverance. If we don't have the desire for deliverance, of course we don't get to the disenchantment. But we can practice it at least, even if we haven't got there. And we have to practice it through seeing the impermanence, first of all, of the body. Through everything that it's constant, falling apart and coming back together again, which is its aging process. Why should it get older and, and more decrepit and more wrinkled and more bent and all that and less uh, strong all the time? There has, Something has to be happening there. Now, when one is very young, one may not notice that yet, very young, but one's greatest strength, physical strength, is at 14. So everybody here is beyond that. It's all Downhill. And if you haven't noticed it yet, pay attention. The swimming champions are always between 14 and 15. The tennis champions are never over 18. It's all downhill after that. If anybody goes longer than that, they're already uh, considered to be a miracle. So, this... Actual impermanence of the body, which is its aging, its decaying, which is its constant movement, which you can feel in the heart, in the blood, in the breath, which is constant irritation, has to be known in order to eventually see it for what it is. Nothing but an impermanent process of bits and pieces which are working after a fashion. It's never perfect. Even those people who go in for... Uh, real bodybuilding and 100% health but it just can't be perfect it works for a while and then what does it do? it disappears, it dissolves, it falls to bits a while six score and ten seventy years what is that in the scheme of the universe? it's not even a drop in the bucket you can't even see that as a drop in the bucket now if we if finally can get to look at ourselves in the way we really are we may have so much benefit from that that all the things that happen in one's daily life no longer have any of that impact so that there's any fear, worry, anxiety it's just happening. And it just flows, wherever one is. No difference, whether here or in the supermarket. It's all one and the same. It just flows. And if one can finally get that through one's head that this is what it is, life changes. we have to give up our life in order to gain eternal life. Makes no sense, does it? Well, this is exactly what it means. Every spiritual master has said the same thing. Very few people listen. After they've listened, understand, or try to do. The problem is, A very natural one. We'd like to have our cake and eat it too. We would like to be me and have absolutely no Dukkha. Remain me and have no Dukkha. Get it all fixed up nicely. It's not possible. We're looking for the impossible as usual. So we've got to do something about that. So we've got to look at impermanence again and again and again, not just once, and say, ah, yeah, sure. Breath, impermanent, of course. I knew that all the time. Movement, sure, impermanent. So what? That doesn't bring anything. The moment that it brings something is the moment when one actually sees one's body and one's mind as processes which are continually changing, continually re-arising, but there is nothing that has anything solid or any solid appearance even within them. When one just knows this is happening. Now, one can't know that unless one has looked at impermanence over and over and over and particularly, of course, in body, and then in mind. Now mind, thoughts, any permanent thoughts anywhere to be found? Any permanent feelings anywhere to be found? We may have a recurrence of similar feelings. We may have a recurrence of similar thoughts. It's constantly coming and going. And what is all this coming and going without paying attention to it actually do to people? Sometimes it creates a bit of a euphoric feeling because the trigger has been that way. And other times it creates a depressed feeling because the trigger has been that way. In fact, one may even wake up with it already, with a depressed feeling. So, what does one do with it? Look at it and see that it's only a mood which has arisen and disappears again. As soon as we start taking any of these things seriously, personally, identify with them, we are a long way from disenchantment. Disenchantment means being totally disenchanted with anything that this body and this mind throws up. And because one is totally disenchanted with it, which doesn't mean disliking, one can keep one's mind on an even keel no matter what even when the circumstances do not seem to be conducive to that, the mind still has that kind of mood in it, which is conducive to a harmonious feeling and harmonious life. Because there's nothing there that is meaningful. So that impermanence aspect of mind and body, which need constant attention, Otherwise, it's never going to come together. It's always going to remain the same thing. I want my cake and have it too. I will eat it because I don't want to be out there. It's too bothersome out there, so I'll meditate. But it's me that's meditating. It's me that wants the result. It's me that wants to get happiness. It's me that wants to have something. That way, does not lie the end of Dukkha. That way lies increased Dukkha. Because then even the last hope that is going to come through the meditative path is going to be shattered. Everything else has already been noticed for being not um, up to one's expectation, but then this last hope is going to be shattered too. This way it doesn't work. It's got to be I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to give up and I'm ready to see an absolute truth behind all this relativity. I'm ready to allow myself to expand my mind. Not everybody can do it naturally. (coughs) Allow myself to have my mind so expanded that it takes in a totally new concept a new totally new perception a, new, a totally new state of consciousness with that new state of consciousness all the old states of consciousness which so often result in negativity are no longer pertinent they have lost all pertinence they no, have no meaning the negativity is meaningless Because everything else that arises is still only a phenomena which has come and will go again. So negativity is even more meaningless because it creates even unhappiness. And the fear and the anxiety and the worries and the the, uh, perfectionism that's a wonderful one. Who's going to be perfect? Who is it? half the head, half the body, the teeth or skin, who's going to be perfect? That's a great one, that perfectionism. I'm going to do it right and nobody else. Or I'm going to do it better. Or anything you can do, I can do better than you. Where, how, when, all completely wrong thinking will never lead to anything on the spiritual path. But the spiritual path does not happen in the meditation hall, and that's got to also be understood. And that's why we have month-long retreats, so that it finally dawns on people. Because we spend most of our time during that month outside of the meditation hall, don't we? So the spiritual path happens every moment of the day and not in the meditation hall. This is nothing but the training for the final match. That's all it is. The training period. A training period must then be followed by the actual trying to use that training. So impermanence can be seen anywhere, anytime, within oneself. Disenchantment means The disenchantment with the infatuation with this person. Now, infatuation with this person takes two two sides. One is, look how pretty I am, look how clever I am, look how um, uh, wonderful I am, look how kind I am, look how loving I am, and all the rest of that. And then the other side is, look how terrible I am, look how stupid I am, look how I I need help, look how I can't do anything. Both. They're both the same thing. Exactly the same thing. No difference. In fact, the second one is probably worse. Not only probably. The first one's better. Because at least the person who thinks that they can do something actually makes themselves do things because of that conviction that they can do something. The one who could think they can't do anything, they don't even try. Although both are based on a complete ego delusion, the one which who thinks that they can do something at least has uh, a chance. The other one always needs to first come back to that level of, okay, I'm, I'm as good as everybody else, and then can start working on that ego delusion. So they're both totally damaging, and they are not um, worthwhile considering. The only thing that's worthwhile considering is the impermanence in mind and body. The infatuation, in other words, has two aspects, and it has—it is an extreme on both sides. So that extreme has to come to the middle, because the Buddha's teaching is the middle path. In the middle, we see there's nobody there to be infatuated with. There's nobody there who can do everything and there's nobody there who can do nothing. The only thing that's there is a mind that's trying to actualize its potential. That's all. Now, unless we find this impermanence in ourselves through continued introspection and contemplation and observance, It's observing ourselves. Proper disenchantment won't take place. And when proper disenchantment doesn't take place, we can't go further. Disenchantment is a big step. And it has big results. And although the the word sounds, the the, uh, syllable dis, has the negative aspect so it sounds as if something negative is happening it's the exact opposite it's something extremely positive happens because the mind who has become disenchanted with mind and body is no longer worried by what's happening to mind and body and because it isn't worried it's also not fearful and therefore it just flows it sails through whatever is happening nothing can really get on the top of it Because there's nothing there. Now, when this passion comes to that point, we have found the entry towards Nibbana. That doesn't mean that we're now going to have Nibbana right away, but it means that the spiritual path is assured. Only then is it assured when we have actually become disenchanted with ourselves. Now again, I'm going to emphasize this again. Becoming disenchanted with oneself does not mean not liking oneself. On the contrary, it has nothing to do with like or dislike. In fact, it can happen that one likes the disenchantment very much, because the disenchantment is extremely likable it makes things very light one can feel quite strongly whether people are heavy in their inside or whether they are light-hearted It doesn't mean to be superficial just light-hearted or heavy-hearted disenchantment makes it light and therefore it's very likable As long as one takes oneself seriously, one's really in a rut. As long as we take our own likes and dislikes seriously, as long as we believe all the thoughts, as long as we believe that there's somebody there who's got to be catered for, difficult life. Nothing but problems. Constant, recurring problems. And always the same ones, of course, over and over again now, naturally, five billion people think like that, as I said before, we are in very good company, but why stay in this company? Hardly anybody's really happy, I should leave the hardly out. Why stay with it? We've got the best instructions the Absolute perfect instructions what to do. Instructions from an Arahant, totally self enlightened Arahant, what to do. So, do it. From disenchantment, from in Pali Nibida, we come to Virada, which is dispassion. I think I mentioned already that Raga is the English raging and V is the negative syllable non-raging so the non-raging of one's passions in other words we have come to a point of equanimity but again equanimity is very much looked upon in the wrong understanding here the the sutta says contemplating this passion I shall breathe in contemplating this passion I shall breathe out now obviously this is an inside path because we can't contemplate this passion while becoming concentrated into the jhana, there's no way we can't do both. We can't do have inside and calm. It's not possible. Uh, you turn the light off? What what this actually has come to is that while meditating, this passion has become the meditation object, no longer the breath. It's impossible to do that. We can't be totally focused on the fashion or to and totally focused on the breath. We can do one or the other. And this is also what is what is meant here with this. Now we are concerning ourselves with insight at the moment. We could turn this around and saying, being dispassionate, we breathe in and we breathe out. Being dispassionate, breathing in, breathing out, means there's equanimity, which means that we can get to the fourth jhana. But this is not what is being said. We're looking at the inside path. However, as far as the... As the jhanas journey, are concerned, and this is a pathway here, as we remember, if you remember, it went as far as the second. The fourth jhana helps us to have equanimity. We need help. Everybody does. An ordinary human being, mind and emotions are so mixed up. Almost said another word for that. <laughs> that it's impossible to even know what's going on in there. It's such a mess. So we need all the help we can get. And the jhanas are the help. In fact, the jhanas are the meditative states that have been taught ever since meditation has been known to man. Now, it's probably been known to men much longer than we have written records. We have written records for about 5,000 years in the Rig Veda, which is 2,500 years earlier than the Buddha. But we have, humanity has been on this planet far longer than 5,000 years. It's a drop in the bucket. So one would imagine that meditation has been existing longer. It may not have been called meditation. What does it matter what it's called? There is no other pathway for meditation. I think this is an important aspect which is never being talked about. It's sort of like being kept a secret. Why, I don't know. No matter who teaches what, if the mind is trained and guided at least a little... It's its natural habitat to go into the jhanas. That is its natural pathway. And whether it's in Hinduism or whether it's in Buddhism, whether it's in Christianity, it can be found in Meister Eckhart's writings, where it's in the Teresa Davila's writings, very, sim- very easily found. She calls it the eight uh, chambers in the magnificent mansion. Uh, seven, sorry, we've got eight, she's got seven. Uh, It doesn't matter what religion, what uh, pathway, what contemplation, it's always the same thing. It's always the jhanas. And the jhanas are the one thing that helps us to get out of the mess we're in. The mess means our constant change from... Being in a mood of equanimity, joyousness, and acceptance to a mood of dislike, rejection, depression, worry, fear, hate, doubt, and back to equanimity, joy, pleasant, nice, and back to. Over and over and over. And we don't even know where all this mess comes from. We think, oh, maybe it's my mother that did it. Somebody must have done it. Nobody has done it. It's an absolute, total human mess. That's all it is. But we can get out of it. There's no um, way that a person who's willing to practice can't get out of it but we have to keep on practising and nobody can do it for us we can only do it ourselves, we've got the best instruction the fourth jhana helps us is an enormous assistance in equanimity now it's often called the jhana of equanimity which is also not exact because in the fourth jhana the experience is of such stillness that one can't say, I'm now economist. it's impossible. It's just still. But because of having that experience over and over again, the mind sheds some of its restlessness and worry and some of its um, anxiety and fear and some of its tension if it is still what we call a normal mind, it can do that if it hasn't been affected by anything. So, as it sheds that, equanimity becomes more and more its base. Now, equanimity is just as misunderstood, as I said, as disenchanted. And I'd like to, once more, make it clear what it really is. Equanimity is joy no matter what. As simple as that. It doesn't matter where one is and what one does. And if one doesn't have that no matter what one needs to go into the fourth jhana over and over again in order to give the mind that opportunity to become still and peaceful so that when it comes out it can understand that all this stuff that makes it unpeaceful and non-equanimous, is totally unimportant. Equanimity, true equanimity, only arises out of insight. It doesn't arise out of effort, although we can make effort. If we don't make effort, the whole thing collapses anyway. When we feel anxiety and and upset arising, we have to make effort to become equanimous no matter what goes on but it will never come together where it is natural without insight and then equanimity is joy it's inner joy oneself feels it and other people feel it and it has nothing to do with what goes on what can, what can this world have anything to do with states of consciousness what's it got to do with infinity of space and infinity of consciousness, what can it have? How, does it have any connection to it? I mean, the only connection has that it exists. Otherwise, it has not, no impact on it. Nothing, nothing at all. So the real equanimity arises out of that. And this passion, the raga, non-raging is equanimity. And that brings joy, why? Because it's without desire. Non-passion is obviously without desire. If it doesn't matter anymore, whatever it is, it just doesn't matter anymore, then how can the joy be destroyed? Because whatever it is, It doesn't matter. Whatever we want, it doesn't matter. So when it doesn't matter, but truly doesn't matter, not just as a matter of of, uh, uh, language, because our Asian friends have that built in in their language. In Sri Lanka, Kamakne, everything is Kamakne. In Thailand, everything is Maiden Rai. mean it doesn't matter. It's part of language. So it's a uh, well of course in English we also say it doesn't matter but in those countries it's constantly being said it's like in the Muslim country constantly inshallah may it may it happen because of the will of Allah you know, it's just word play the whole thing is just words it doesn't mean a thing when it really insides, we have seen that none of this out there has any connection to absolute reality and equanimity has become natural then the desires have disappeared. Then passion has disappeared. And then joy can be the only thing that's left. What else can be left? And this is a misunderstanding that people constantly have, and quite understandably so, that this enchantment means I can't be enchanted with anything. Look at the loss I'm occurring, incurring. I can't, this passion, I can't have any passions. So I'm losing something. In fact, I have quite um, frequently, well, frequently, but sometimes the um, skeptical doubt comes out in these words. Well, I'm not interested in this passion. I like my passions. And I don't mind if I go up, I don't mind also going down. But I'm going to keep them. Well, all one can say is be my guest have them, everybody else has them too. This is a very frequent um, thought process that the dis enchantment, like this ability like this passion like this continue the word dis brings it to mind as if I'm losing something. On the contrary, one gains everything. As one gives up, one's life, one gains eternal life. And only that way is the meditation going to flourish. I've said it before, I will say it again. I can't always think of something new. (laughs) If you don't give yourself to the meditation, the meditation isn't going to come to you. You've got to give yourself to it. Which means giving up. And that's the whole secret of the spiritual path. It's an open secret. We don't become anyone. We don't become anything. We're going to be somebody. We're going to be something. <laughs> We're already far too much. Giving it up. Letting it go. The whole kitten and caboodle. Just let it all go. All There's nothing there to hang on to. The whole thing is me. I want my meditation. I want my peace. I want my joy. I want my this. I want my that. You can't get it. It's not there to be given. Who's going to give it? It just doesn't exist that way. Disenchantment, dispassion means the understanding of giving oneself away particularly the dispassion. The dispassion means giving up completely. Now what does one give up? The self-assertion. I am it and I'm going to occupy this place and don't let anybody come near it. It's mine and this is me. That's what we give up. And if we don't give up that self-assertion, then this passion will not come. Now, this passion, mind you, is a super mundane step. It's the first of the super mundane steps. So, obviously, on the scale, so to say, of insight, it occupies an enormously high rung. It is an advanced state. It shows itself in an inner feeling of security. One can only be secure when one's got everything one wants and since nobody ever gets everything from out there you've got to get it in here and if one has everything that one wants that means one doesn't want anything. And that's dispassion. And then one feels secure. Nobody can take anything away from one because there's nothing there to be taken. And nobody can add anything because it's already done it's all in here and it's secure that's the now because as I said it is a super mundane step it takes a fair bit of doing and the doing is for a meditator particularly between that which I call terror which doesn't have to be terror it doesn't have to be a panic it can be the lack of willingness to give oneself away because that is an unknown, a step into the unknown, and therefore fearful. It doesn't have to be, one doesn't have to be terrorized by it, but it can be fearful. And being fearful, one remains on the edge. One is so to say, sitting on the fence, let's see what happens. Maybe it will happen by itself. And if it happens by itself, well, of course, then I can't help it, then I'll see what it's like. Well, it never will happen by itself. It's impossible. That's got to be the giving up first. Or one sits on the fence and says, well, let's see what the teacher is like. Maybe maybe he or she can do it. And if, I, if I'm convinced that they can, that you or she can do it, maybe I'll try myself. We're sitting on the fence, or we'll try ten different teachers, which is the typical uh, result. Not maybe ten, five, six, whatever is available, at that point, and see whether they can do it. Of course, not having done it oneself, one hasn't got a clue whether anybody else has done it. They, anything that we see around ourselves is nothing but a mirror image. We only see what we have. But we've got, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We can never tell whether anybody else has done a thing if we haven't done it ourselves. So we sit on the fence at that point, it's fearful, to step into the unknown, it takes courage. And it takes the courage of letting go of all self-assertion, in fact of letting go of the cake, on which so far we've been trying to put the cherry on top just throwing the cake out completely never mind this cherry that we're trying to get on top of it and between that, between that fearfulness of doing that step to get to the disenchantment and from there to the dispassion that is the hardest work and that's why one has to look at impermanence over and over and over and take the body apart into bits and pieces and take the mind apart into its bits and pieces until it becomes totally clear and obvious that there's nobody there nobody at all it's just happening constantly happening and if we can't get that together that it's constantly happening if that remains lip service I mean people who have read enough they certainly say these things with facility no, no great uh, um, intelligence even needed to say these things. But it become it's a totally a superficial state. What one has to do is sit down quietly, nicely, in a meditation and use it for contemplation. That's what it says here. Contemplation. And look inside and find the me. Where does it sit? Why does it scream all the time? All the time it's screaming in the head. Me, I want this. Me, I want that. Me, I don't like that. Me, it's too much. Me, it's too little. Where is its abode? Who is screaming? Who is screaming me all the time? This is a contemplation, a meditation, looking for it. Where is it? Where can I see it? If it is no answer, if nothing is happening, impermanence. Where is that moment of solidity within all that impermanence? This has to be done over and over. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The Buddha said one can become enlightened in seven days. How long have you been here? And how did he say to become enlightened in seven days? By perfect mindfulness. Watching oneself. Finding out where is this me coming from. Well, obviously, seven days is a bit short. But he he didn't put it at any longer than seven years. Maximum. So, anything between seven days and seven years. The work is between giving up this idea that I don't like my dukkha, so I'd like to get all, I like to experience no dukkha, and the disenchantment with the one who's wanting all this. That's the main, main work in that area. I'll just finish reading this little paragraph, there's more to it, I'll talk about it tomorrow. I have already the discussion. I read about the discussion. Contemplating cessation, I shall breathe in. Contemplating cessation, I shall breathe out. Contemplating renunciation, I shall breathe in. Contemplating renunciation, I shall breathe out. Thus cultivated monks, thus made much of, the concentration on in- and out-breathing is of great fruit of great profit. Well, obviously, there's more to be said about cessation and renunciation, but I think that will we'll, uh, keep till tomorrow. Now, if you have any questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes?
1: Can you explain about when fasting? Not aware very much of what's going on externally, and I get this idea that I should be I should be externally aware. And yet I have more
0: equanimity when my attention is in me. Yes. The Buddha talks about internal and external mindfulness as applicable. Now obviously, when one goes shopping, one has to have external mindfulness. There's no two ways about it. If you want to buy apples, if you don't have mindfulness, you're going to buy tomatoes instead. Right? So, I mean, it's just not possible. So it has to be external mindfulness. But because you're not so interested in apples and tomatoes as you are in your own mind states, it isn't so fascinating to be interested in that, to be so mindful of apples and tomatoes. So the mindfulness has a far easier time to slip And then, of course, at that moment, the um, disquiet arises. Because, obviously, the outside world has a lot of movement in it. But should the attention stay totally one-pointed on the apples, so that one gets apples and not tomatoes, then the disquiet wouldn't have a chance to come in. Now, obviously, it's not interesting for apples, but that's what one needs to do.
1: I understand that. What about being uh, with the attention more open, without going on anything? Like when walking down the street, and not necessarily being aware of what's what's happening around one. I mean, aware of what one needs to be aware. Of, you know, the body moving. You know, what's what's got to be done in a, in a reasonably uh, uh, observant way, and yet not being as observant as one could be of, of other people
0: what's, what's being worn you know, colors, sky and clouds and, and all that and other things no, mindfulness needs to direct itself toward that which is either necessary at the time which in that situation there's something that's necessary or in a situation such as this which is most profitable at the time mindfulness is not uh, being aware of everything Mindfulness is being aware of one thing at a time.
1: Mm. I think I had an idea that mindfulness was more global.
0: You know, it's no. An idea. No. Uh, the global awareness, actually, you can have in the jhanas, and if you take it out into the world, it can become rather disquieting, because, you see, all these other things are intruding. Whereas in the jhanas, you don't get to have that intrusion. Yeah. It's quite important not to allow intrusion. Yeah. And in the jhanas, we can do that. Thank you. Mm. Okay, anything else? Disenchantment, dispassion, fear, mindfulness or anything, anything at all.
1: I'm yeah. I sure don't quite get the, uh, the explanation that you're giving to Stephen about being, like when you're walking down the street. So where, just, just let's say I'm going down to the end of the street to a shop, before I reach it, there's quite a decent walk down.
0: Now, where would I put the mindfulness? It depends what's necessary. If the if sidewalk is chock-a-blocked with people, you're going to have to put the mindfulness so that you don't bump into them. But if you're all alone on this sidewalk, you can put your attention on each step so that you know exactly when you reach the curb, so you don't fall off. I mean, common sense is a great part of the practice also. one thing at a time one thing at a time, yeah. but that thing has to keep on changing depending on the situation sure specifically in the outside world where you have to be alert to uh, physical things like bumping into other people or stepping on somebody's foot you know, some people are totally unaware of what goes on with other people. there are two ways of making mistakes in that in that area. One uh, way of making mistake in that area is to be totally unaware of other people, which means not being considerate uh, that's not uncommon and any grade of that inconsiderateness i mean total or a little or a lot or whatever. So that's one way of extreme lack of mindfulness, of external mindfulness. And then there's the other extreme of having absolutely no center point within oneself and constantly being attentive to what's going on around one. And of course getting more and more excited and anxious and and, uh, upset about it because the attention changes always from one thing to the next, what's going on around one. Having no center point to relate to. That's the other extreme. Well, both don't work. One has to be, have a center point within, from which one operates, and become aware of that, whatever's necessary.
1: <laughs>
0: as soon as you become mindful, I'm sure you're going to find out. It's a feeling of security that you don't react. A feeling of feeling uh, inwardly secure that you can be attentive and mindful to whatever is necessary. So it's not going overboard on one thing or going overboard on the other. Paying no attention to what goes on around you then you become inconsiderate. And also it's a physical danger. You can be in physical danger because of that. And, and which is an extreme and the other extreme is to being constantly alert to what goes on around you and having absolutely no discernment of what's important to watch and what isn't and both are very unpleasant for oneself yes um, what about
1: like driving
0: how often do you have accidents (laughs) um, mindfulness is not an expansion of awareness mindfulness on the contrary is pinpointedness bringing it to the head of a pin how many angels can dance on the head of a pin so if
1: you're driving
0: No, unless you're at a stoplight where it seems that you're going to stand a while there, instead of becoming impatient, you can become aware of sitting there and watching your breath. It's better than getting impatient and starting honking the horn and and, and yelling at the one in front to get moving. I mean, that's also done, you know. (laughs) That's not very useful. But while you're driving, drive. While you're breathing, well, that's probably done best in the meditation. Mm-hmm. unless there's a lull, you know and you can do that so there's nothing like that expanded
1: awareness
0: expanded awareness is, is a journey oh. <laughs> driving not driving the car no <laughs> expansion of awareness is a, is a journey and expansion of, of uh, the, uh, the emotion that's the loving kindness we can expand certainly but not while driving a car mindfulness is pinpointedness one point at a time naturally with common sense yes can you make that question a little clearer uh, you, you advise
1: non-reaction
0: non-reaction to as, what
1: as, uh, it, that, that is being economist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and how, how does that relate to a, a situation where
0: it requires compassion or something like that or one of those feelings well, non-reaction is usually understood to be that you don't react with any negativity. Equanimity always has loving kindness embedded in it, because equanimity has joyfulness in it. The only real loving kindness can be, can only happen when there's equanimity. Without equanimity, there's no loving kindness that is that is uh, basic. It's only only an attempt at it, It's a trial. But the reality of it only happens when there's equanimity, because it's without judgment then, right. and it arises automatically. It's always there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um,
1: can you only have really know what equanimity um, is after that you, like you've got to experience the disenchantment, which is the cause for equanimity? Is the right? yes. So so we can't really, like
0: you're saying, you can we practice the community. You can practice it. Because Always practice it again and again mm-hmm. by recognizing that you're reacting. And of course reacting means either with greed or hate. Mm-hmm. That's reaction. It doesn't have to be wild greed or wild hate. It can be mild dislike or it can be a mild wanting. But those are reactions love and equanimity are not reactions they are states of emotional states which we are cultivating so yes you're quite right um, the real equanimity can only be experienced once there is disenchantment certainly but if we don't do something about it by practicing equanimity and uh, recognizing when we are reacting with anything uh, in anything that's unwholesome we won't get there so we've got to practice please put the attention on the breath for a few moments on your next in breath fill yourself with peace let let the breath bring in peace and fill you with it every in breath fill yourself with peace every out-breath breathe out love when you're filled with peace it's easy to love let the peace come in with the in-breath let the love go out with the out-breath And as you breathe out love, let this love that you breathe out from your heart surround you, embrace you, cover you. breathing in peace and breathing out love and surrounding yourself and covering yourself with love Now breathe out love into this room and into every person that is present here. Breathing in peace, filling yourself, breathing out love to everyone here. And now that you're completely filled with peace you can breathe out love and peace and let it go to the surroundings here the animals and the people Nature, the night sky, the stars, the moon. Breathe in peace and breathe out love and peace. all your environment people and everything that exists around us now think of someone whom you would like to give the gift of love and peace Imagine that person sitting in front of you Fill yourself with peace and then breathe it out to that person Filling him or her with love and peace Now think of as many people as you know or can think of whom you would like to give this gift of love and peace. Make them all sit in front of you. Fill yourself with peace. And breathe out love and peace to them, filling them, surrounding them, giving them this gift from your heart. Now think of any one person whom you consider difficult Let that person sit in front of you Breathe out love and peace to him or her Giving the gift of your heart Now breathe out love and peace as far and wide as it will go Imagine people Anywhere at all In your country, in your town In other countries, in other towns All looking for love and peace Breathe it out to them Let the strength of your love and peace go as far as possible. Think of your daily duties, daily activities. Breathe love and peace into them so that they become imbued with love and peace, enlightened, so that they have that quality which you breathe into them. Think of yourself as being love and peace Not a special person But just being love and peace Think of yourself like that And try to feel, feel yourself like that Give yourself as love and peace, your whole being, which is that, give that whole being of love and peace to the whole of creation, not keeping anything back for yourself, just giving. Feel the peace and the contentment from having given yourself away completely. May beings everywhere have love and peace in their hearts.